end is poured out uh, to the desolator. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. As you can tell, I'm probably ner more nervous than normal because we're dealing with something very specific that actually affects a lot of people in very emotional ways. There are some very committed end times understandings and probably a varied difference amongst us this morning. And I know I'm walking into some um, dangerous waters, let's say. <laughs> so again, we went to Patagonia. We stayed with a dear brother who had been a pastor. And he had decided that he was going to put that aside and open up an equestrian uh, rehab center for young people, children who are, are struggling with social problems. In the morning, we could get our coffee and go outside and look across the Strait of Magellan, and, and you have the, the mountains there with some of the snow caps. And you go out back, and you have this wonderful view of, of watching the horses kind of roam in the background up this long, sloped hill. It, it was a great place for the horses because they could just go wandering free as much as they wanted. But it was a place that was actually ridden with rabbit holes. Now, you could sit out at night or walk around, and we did that a couple times, and it would be easy when the sun was going down to count between 50 and 80 rabbits or more in that back space where those horses were. Now, as nice as that sounds, the problem was that the whole hill was actually one rabbit worn, and the whole place was just covered in rabbit holes. And that's a problem when you're trying to run an equestrian rehabilitation center, right? Because it's so easy for the horse to step into a hole and then to throw the rider. Well, this morning as we start into this last part of Daniel chapter 9, the specific vision that God gives Daniel in response to his prayer, we need to walk carefully. <laughs> Every sentence has rabbit holes. And there's pastors through scholars throughout the centuries who have said, let me tell you what this means. And so what's happened is, is over the centuries, we have literally dozens or hundreds of interpretations, various changes and nuances of things. And again, some people get very, very heated because these verses that we're going to look at this morning are the very foundation for their end times understanding. Now, let me just say... Before we start, I don't know everything. <laughs> At the beginning of the week, I was probably just as confused as many of you are sitting there this morning and saying, oh, what did we just read? <laughs> what did Thomas just read? I don't understand that. And I can confess, I, you know, before Thursday, I was saying, great, Scott, what am I going to write? You know, Chris was writing, said, do you have any recommendations for the worship? And I said, I have no idea where I'm even going with this yet. So it's, it's been a challenge. But you know what? I've, I've taken an extra amount of time this week just to meditate, to think through these things. And so what's happened is the Lord blessed me that by Friday, several key things started to gel in my mind. So I feel that I can come before you competently and yet perhaps fearfully because I know that there are so many differences of opinions out there. Now let me say also that my task this morning is not to sketch out the four major end times views. It's, it's not to give you all the nuances of every sentence, of every word usage. It's, it's not to convince you of one particular view of end times. 
It's simply to try to make some clarity of the basic things that are there. And if you have challenges, you have questions, you know, let's come back and we'll talk about it together over a cup of coffee or something. So when it comes to the Bible, you've probably all heard the phrase, context is king, right? I've heard it here. And so if you haven't, you just haven't been in Sunday school enough, but it's context is king. Well, I can't think of many better verses where that phrase is so important as at the end of chapter 9 in this vision. And so we need to actually take a couple minutes and just unpack that for us. Now, it's going to take a couple minutes, and you'll bear with me, but it's going to bear much fruit, I think, by the time we come to the end. So the first thing that we have to remember is that the vision and the interpretation that Daniel is given in verses 24 through 27 is in direct response to his prayer that he's called unto God. You remember last week we actually looked at that prayer. Daniel had been reading the book of Jeremiah and he saw in at least two places, in chapter 25 and in chapter 29, where Jeremiah is given the word by God and it's only going to be 70 years. The exile is only going to last 70 years. And so here is, here is one of those verses that he looked at. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Daniel, if you remember, had been taken away in one of the first, in the actual first wave of exiles. He, he's been there over 60 years, and so he's thinking, he's counting back to himself, God's promise, if it's only going to be seven years, it, it must be about to come true. But he also knows that Israel has not learned its lesson yet. They had not repented of their sin. They had not turned back to God. And this was the necessary precondition that would unlock that promise of God. God says, I will do this if my people repent. So that's why he cries out to God. He, he unburdens his soul and says, you know what? You were just and right to send us away into exile. You even warned us. That if we left you, if we abandoned you, if our hearts got callous, that you would send us into exile because we've broken your covenant. You are in every way righteous and just in what you've done. And we're still here. We haven't repented. And yet you say the time is coming. Lord, I beg you, as the God who has established covenant with us, as the God who never fails to keep his part of the covenant, as the God who shows mercy even when only justice is demanded, don't treat us the way we deserve. We've sinned. We've done wrongly. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments. But Lord, Treat us as we do not deserve. Show us mercy, I pray. So Daniel pours out his heart to God in confession, <coughs> repentance, because he knows that if Israel is going to be allowed to return to that promised land, their sin must be dealt with. And that's the point of the arrow of Daniel's prayer. They needed God's forgiveness. They needed to be forgiven. God's answer then 
is in direct response to this plea. But instead of saying, I'm simply going to absolve you of, of those little sins, of those transgressions, we're going to see God says, I, I've got much more here. I'm going to promise to deal with the issue of sin once and forever. So that's the first point of context. The second point of context we need to remember is that the vision that we're going to look at in chapter 9 here actually builds on the vision of chapter 2. You can't say that, that 9 has nothing to do with chapter 2. You remember in chapter 2 we have this huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar and it represents the four kingdoms, the Babylonians, the, Neo the Medo-Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. And then you have this small stone coming down and crushing everything. Well, we saw that that little stone is Christ. And we saw that those four kingdoms give us a time frame or a point of reference of what was going to happen. In response to Daniel's plea for forgiveness, God is about to do against something far greater. He's going to now talk about this little rock. So I think everyone's seen a Prezi, right? I love what you can do with them, but I just don't have the talent to do it. So imagine you've got a Prezi of this statue and you've got this little rock coming in and everything crushing. But if you're able to zoom in on that little rock, this is the vision that we're looking at today. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> now, here are the four things in terms of context that we need to keep in mind as we go forward. That the promises of God in Jeremiah in 25 and 29 were, it's only going to last 70 years. Actually, yeah, there's a, there's a number missing there, but that's fine. So there's the promises of God in Jeremiah. The second is God's specific, uh, Daniel's specific prayer and forgiveness of sin. Then an overwhelming sense of the language of covenant. And then finally, the vision in chapter 2 of the little rock. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that, that these four major issues of context are much like the rails that come up at a bowling alley. You know, you're a little kid and you have those rails come up so the, bowl, the ball can't go in the gutter? Well, as long as we keep these in sight, it will stop us from stepping into rabbit holes. <laughs> and that's going to be a challenge because there are so many in our text this morning. Now, there's one more thing that we need to kind of look at before we really tackle the vision uh, that uh, Daniel has. And it's going to, again, take us a minute to unpack, but it's going to have great value in our understanding. So, have you ever asked yourself, why 70 years? Why, did God just pick that number out of the sky, or does it have some biblical significance? Well, I want us to look at a couple texts. And some of them we're going to read in full, some of them we're going to read portions of, but I want you to get the, the context of what's going on. And the first one is in Leviticus 26. I'm afraid that may not be too legible from where you're sitting. I'm going to read this whole in out loud here. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I have walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, 
then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And here it is. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for iniquity, for their iniquity, because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. So what does Leviticus 26 and specifically verse 43 tell us? Well, well, not only is God promising, if my people confess, I will remember them and I will remember the land. So the land is tied to the people. But more specifically, verse, 47, verse 43 says that while the people of God are in exile, the land is making up for its Sabbath rest. Now, you know under the Mosaic law that the land was allowed to be used for six years, but that seventh year, it had to lay fallow. It was a rest year. It was a sabbatical year for the land. But Israel broke this over and over, and especially Judah is actually condemned for this several times in the Old Testament. The thing I think we need to start noticing is that the 70-year exile is equal to 10 Sabbaths. 10 Sabbath rests, which means that the punishment of the exile is in direct proportion to Israel's breaking of the Sabbath rest while they were still in the land. What that means is God's punishment is just, it's in direct proportion to their sin. Start to follow, hopefully, it may get a little more cloudy, but it will become clearer. God is saying while Israel is out of the land, the land is going to have its Sabbath rest that it never had when you were there. Now, Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7, specifically are the texts that tell us about this Sabbath rest. And I'm just going to read verses 3 through 5. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of, of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of the undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the Lord. Now, just the next verses on, verses 8 through 12, God says, but that's not all. Verse 8, you shall count seven years, or seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet of the tenth day on the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So how does Leviticus 25 help us? What can we bring over here to Daniel 9? Well, again, verses 1 through 7 says, the law establishes a Sabbath rest for the land. And because Israel broke it in the exile, it's going to receive that back again. Verses 8 through 12 says, beyond that, Beyond that, every seventh year, you need to lay aside the 50th year as a special day of rest, a, a special day of Sabbath. And the importance of all of this 
was that in that 50th year, all debts were to be paid. Slaves were to be freed from their bondage. The land was again to have rest. And it all culminated in the celebration of the Day of Atonement. Can you see some of the themes that are maybe starting to come out there? People being released from their debt. Slaves being set free. A, a day of atonement as the culmination of the worship of that 50th year. Israel's 70-year exile is in direct relationship to their violation of the breaking of the Sabbath years. Okay. Please stick with me one minute yet. <laughs> Second Chronicles 36, 15 and following. Now, I am going to read this because there is so much in it that actually settles discussions in Daniel 9. One of the discussions is, like, who is the, the one that gives the decree? Well, it tells us here in Second Chronicles. So as we walk through this, hopefully some of the questions that you may have had about Daniel 9 in preparation for this morning are answered already. <coughs> Second Chronicles chapter 36, starting at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on their young men or virgins, uh, old men or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all of the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. And here are the verse that we need to really focus on. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all of the days that it lay desolate and keep with the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of this earth, and he has charged me to build him a, a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let you go up now. Well, here, what do we take away from this? Chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles tells us three things that are important for Daniel chapter 9. First of all, the violation of the Sabbath years. That is directly connected to the exile. Secondly, there's a direct connection to Jeremiah and the promise that it would only be 70 years. And then thirdly, 
we're told very explicitly that it is Cyrus who is going to be the one who gives the proclamation. Okay. Breathe out. <laughs> With all of that background, let's start looking at chapter 9, verse 24. Because you know what? The very first words, we have challenges. The Lord says, 70 weeks are decreed, are decreed about your people. You notice in the ESV it says 70 weeks. God has set aside 70 weeks. This is this time schedule that we're going to look at. The problem is in that in the original language, it's not weeks in the text. It's 77s. Now, traditionally in the church, the, the, the commentators, the translators have tried to make sense out of this, and they say, well, very often the, uh, the understanding is seven is a, a time of completeness. It's a time of, of, of perfection. It, it is used in other places to represent a week, so they translate it 70 weeks and not simply 70 sevens. And that has meant that traditionally the church has said that that we see this as not only weeks, but years, because we know that weeks is often used for a synonym or another way of saying years. So what the church has, has said traditionally is that there are 70 times 7 years, or 490 years. And so we have diagrams like this. From the time of the proclamation at issues with Cyrus, there is going to be 490 years until the coming of the Messiah. Simply put, that's the time frame. Now, beyond that, almost everybody wants to know well, well, exactly what time frame. You know, who gave the proclamation? Because we don't necessarily believe it was Cyrus. Is it Ezra? Is it Nehemiah? Who's the, who's the prince that we're talking about and bringing people back again? And so there is an unendable search to try to peg what 490 years it actually is. And, and 490 years is traditional. But you know what? The actual mathematics don't work out perfectly. So we, we have all of these different interpretations. There's probably four or five major ones as to what year it starts, what year it ends. Forget that. The important thing is that there is a beginning with Cyrus and there is the coming of Christ. Now, let me just say at this point, I don't think that's necessarily how Daniel would have understood it. Because to, to, to figure all that out, you know, I was reading things, and so if it's this person, it goes to then, and then we have to change over to the Julian cal calendar and figure out how many days and half days and, you know, what, what was being done at the time. That was all before him. He didn't have that as a point of reference. I, I don't believe... That's how Daniel himself would have looked at it. So while the 490 years is good and right, and we'll say that that's the traditional position of the evangelical church, I, I want to challenge us. We've just looked at Leviticus. We've just looked at Second Chronicles. We've just looked at Jeremiah. I want to suggest to you that there is another importance of the 77s. Even if it's tied to the 490 years, we need to understand that, that that time period is the same as, is equal as, 10 jubilee rests. 10 jubilee years. 
So in the same way that the duration of the exile, the, the length of the exile is directly connected to Israel's covenantal break and or unfaithfulness in not observing that rest, God's promise saying, this is what I'm going to do, is also connected to the promise of rest, of restoring the people to the land. It's directly respond, connected to that, that end of that cycle where on the Day of Atonement, there will be a releasing of prisoners. Uh, debt will be paid for. Basically, God's saying this, Daniel, you have prayed for forgiveness and to go back to the promised land, and I have heard you, I've answered. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to use the the years of Sabbath in the land that, that you know all about as a framework for understanding what's about to happen. The year of Jubilee is, was always a, a, a reference point looking forward to, while we look forward to that rest, it was not a perfect rest. Well, we, we forgave people of their debts. There was never a, a removal of the debt of sin. People may have been received, uh, re, uh, released from physical slavery, but they were never freed from spiritual slavery. So as much as anything, it always pointed forward to a greater spiritual need a greater rest, a greater atonement, a forgiveness for sin, and a cessation of the hostilities with God. Let me tell you what all of that foreshadowed, Daniel. I've heard your prayer, but you know what? I'm going to do something far greater than you could ever have imagined. Something far greater than than all of the law of Moses. It only ever pointed towards that. And what was God going to do in those 77s? Well, that's what we have in the rest of verse 24. There are six things in particular God says, this is what I'm going to do. Number one, to finish the transgression. This is the, the most basic meaning of sin to transgress God's law. This was the original sin of Adam and Eve. And so God says, I'm going to put away all lawlessness. The second thing he says is, is I'm going to put an end to sin. And literally, he means an end to sin. There is going to be a sacrifice, once for all, atoning for sin, that will deal with it definitively and forever. No longer will anyone be a slave to sin. Number three to atone for iniquity. Now, the image in the Old Testament is of a blood sacrifice, right? And the blood would be applied to the the, the altar as a covering over of iniquity. And and atonement is what washes away the stain of sin. It appeases the righteousness of God and and His wrath. So together, these three words, sin, transgression, iniquity, represent the fullness of the curse that is upon us as human beings in the fall coming out of the garden of Adam, uh, 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 with Adam and Eve. And, and together, God says, I'm going to deal with sin fully. I'm going to deal with the transgressions. They're all going to be pardoned. I'm going to deal with the iniquity. It's all going to be washed away. That's what I'm going to do in these next 77s. As Daniel heard these words... He must have been overwhelmed at the depth 
and the breadth of, of what God is promising here. He pleaded for mercy, but he never under, expected this. He, he never understood. God says, I'm going to deal with the curse of sin once and all. Not in part, but the whole. And it will be dealt with forever for my people. But God says, I'm also going to do some other things. I'm going to bring an everlasting righteousness. Because here's the thing, it, it's, it's not enough if we have not sinned or if we have never sinned because we are still fallen creatures with a, a fallen nature. We are in desperate need of a righteousness that is not our own. And so God says, I'm going to bring a perfect righteousness. And that is going to be the basis of your salvation. And it's going to put you in right relationship with me forevermore. Number five, to seal up both vision and profit. In the Old Testament, God most commonly spoke to his, to his people through the prophets using visions and prophecies. But he says, there is a day coming when I will not speak through visions and prophecies again because there is one coming who is the very image of the living God. There is going to be no more need for these things because there is a full revelation coming in the Messiah. Hebrews 1.1 speaks to this very issue, doesn't it? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Number six, to anoint a holy one. Now, you'll notice, what does your ESV say? To anoint a holy place. That's not a very helpful translation. It could very much be that their translators are thinking, going back to Jerusalem, the anointing of Jerusalem, but in the, in the context of understanding that there is a salvation coming, and as we're going to see, it's going to be coming in the, in the person of a Savior named Jesus, much better translation would be to anoint a holy one. In fact, this is only one of two places in the whole of the Old Testament where the word anointed or Messiah is actually applied to a person, somebody who is coming on behalf of the Lord. So here's what God's going to do. He's going to anoint His Messiah. And it's through Him that God will accomplish these other goals and purposes to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and profit forever. What verse 24 is for us, and, and this is important as we go forward, it is a basic statement of intent. Verses 25 through 27, they're going to fill in some of the details as we go along, but in verse 24, God says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is the time frame. Now, let's talk about how it all works out. So everything that he is doing, is going to do, culminates and comes together in this Messiah who we are sending. And in this Messiah, in this Christ, full salvation will be given. And again, that's important as we move forward because there is a large school of theology, large school of churches, who would believe that in verse 27, in that last seven of seven, 70 of seven, there's actually a gap in the week. 
They would say, well, there is a process, but, but God has interrupted that, and there is now a time for the church uh, of, of, the, of the Gentiles. Here's the challenge. It is everything God is saying, it, this is all going to happen in this time frame. There, there isn't anything that is going to be flung uh, past the coming of the Messiah. There, there doesn't seem to be any gaps as we read this in God's plan. And in fact, the, the words 77s here, in, written in the way it is in the original language, it, it, it brings the connotation of completeness brings the connotation of there's a one cohesive unit. And that precludes us from breaking it up and saying, well, that's an age for then, and that's an age for now. God's response to Daniel's plea for mercy was to promise the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and as I've looked at different people over the, uh, in, in commentaries, they have said this is the prayer that unleashes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at how our prayer was actually directly tied to that, right? In the censor that Tat talked about, and in, Jerem or in Daniel very specifically. At once Jeremiah or Daniel prayed, God says, I have already attended to this. Daniel's uh, God's response to Daniel is he's going to bring Jesus, who will finally and fully bring an atonement for sin. He's going to free us from the slavery of sin by providing us a righteousness that is not our own. So that's verse 21, the foundation point, the basic statement. Now in verses 25 through 27, we actually get some more details. And the challenge is that every sentence and every step now actually seems to become a little more obscure, a little more challenging to, to figure out. But you know what? We can actually go a little bit faster because we've already set, I think, a good foundation for interpreting these things. Again, God basically says there are three heavenly stages that are going to happen. Remember that, that one diagram with all of those arrows? Think of it simply like this. Stage number one, from Ezra from, from Cyrus to Ezra, there's going to be a proclamation go out. There is going to be a representative of my people. They are going to go back. I am promising that the first step is going to be a literal return. The challenge, as we know, is that you can't send back unregenerate people to the same land that they were in before. There's been no heart change. So there's going to be a step two. While they're back, that's this next stage of 62 weeks or 62 77s or what we would say 62 sabbath jubilees during this time it says very specifically that walls will be rebuilt the waterways will be rebuilt so it'll have fresh water the temple will be here's the thing it's going to be a time of trials instability and troubles this if we put it back into daniel chapter 2 is what it's the time of the Greeks and the Romans. And the Greeks were especially good at persecuting the Jews. At one point, at least 100,000 were killed. But there's going to be a third stage, and this is where the coming of the Messiah comes in. And very specifically, verses 26 through 27 tell us what's going to happen in this third stage. The first two stages are, are, are dealt with very quickly because it's the third stage where we see the Messiah. 
And there's going to be a couple things happen very specifically. Number one, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. Now, I'm sure Daniel didn't understand what that meant. He was probably still grasping what, what it all meant, that there was going to be someone come, an anointed one, who's going to bring atonement, let alone being cut off. But if he had only remembered the words of Isaiah 53, that wonderful chapter of the suffering servant, it's all there. Isaiah spoke of this very thing. And we know ourselves, especially at Easter time, we remember those words. He was rejected by God's people. He's whipped, he was scourged, he was tortured. He was stripped naked and put on a cross where he was abandoned by God and disavowed by even Peter. The second thing God says is that the people of the prince shall come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Jerusalem as a city is going to be destroyed by a foreign power. It's going to be wiped as if a flood came and just leveled everything. It's going to be desolate once again. Now, Jesus himself spoke of this a couple times. Example, Luke 21, verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. This desolation of the temple and of the city happened in 70 A.D. and just after when Titus, the Roman uh, in, who's in charge of the army, actually becomes the emperor of Rome, laid siege, and then just wipes the city clean. Some people estimate that out of that, over a million Jews were killed. The third thing God says is going to happen in this time, last time, last time frame. He says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. Now, again, many teachers and preachers of a particular end times understanding believe the he here is actually the Antichrist. They'll say that it is Satan who makes a covenant with God's people, with the nation of Israel, and allows them to continue offering sacrifices in the temple, but then he's going to change his mind, and then he's going to persecute and attack. The problem, however, is if we already understand verse 26, the, it's not the Antichrist, it's the historic person Titus, who's the, the leader of these Roman centurions and armies. There, there's no reason in the text to say it is the Antichrist. There's nothing there that would indicate that. And here's the clincher for me as I was thinking about this. Beyond that, the words that are used here to make a strong covenant actually have the meaning to strengthen a covenant that already exists. We're not talking about someone making a new covenant with the people of God and going off in a different direction. We're talking about the strengthening of a covenant that's, always, that's been there. So we're talking about a person... Not making a new covenant that's totally different from what's before, but rather strengthening one that God already has in place with his people. I think the answer as we just think about some of these things is, is to remember that not everything in Daniel happens chronologically. We see verse 24 is that wonderful statement of intent and, and a general a time frame. And then verses 26 through 27 are probably better seen as bullet points. Here's what's going to happen. Boom, boom, boom. And we need to be careful and separate out what are the proper bullet points. 
If everything in this vision has to do with the Messiah, if it has to do with the salvation that he is going to bring, then I think we need to understand that everything that's going on in verses 26 and 27 primarily about the Messiah. He's going to send the Messiah so that sin can be dealt with once and for all. And once we start seeing that, I think we can confidently say that it is the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, who confirms that covenant, that first covenant established with Abraham, the one that says, through you all the nations will be blessed. It's Jesus who comes to confirm the covenant with many. It's biblical language. I don't know if you like that or not, but a covenant with many. You know, Isaiah 53, 12, that wonderful chapter of the, the suffering servant. What does it say there? He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus himself uses that same wording, that same language in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 when he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That would also mean that the ultimate desolation of Jerusalem happens not simply when the walls fall, but when the Old Testament system is dismantled under the New Covenant when sin is finally dealt with once and for all. That's exactly what Hebrews 8.13 tells us. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what has become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Is it any wonder why Gabriel was sent by God at the time of the evening prayer? God's praying, have mercy on us according to your covenant kindness and, and favor. But instead of, of being told that there is going to be a temporary covering of their sin that would allow them to go back, God says there's going to be something even greater. There's going to be a greater salvation, and it's on the horizon. Salvation, it's only 490 years before the Savior comes. It's only 10 Sabbath jubilee years. God's ultimate purpose was to fulfill all the sacrifices, to usher in this covenant in the blood of Jesus. The covenant that Jeremiah himself talks about in verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 31. So to go back to that hill in Patagonia, <laughs> there are many texts just like this one this morning that seem to be shrouded in obscurity, they're riddled with rabbit holes of interpretation, but there's great value in asking God to give us understanding. Daniel's prayer of repentance releases God's promise that Jesus is the coming Messiah, that he will pay up fully and pardon the sins. And, and here's the takeaway I think I want for us this morning. How does that affect us? We, on this side of the cross, should look back and, and read in Daniel and say, what a wonderful salvation. The depth of the problem of sin, I, I don't know if we fully comprehended it. Daniel didn't. The wisdom that we see in God working out his good and wonderful purposes, they're inscrutable. He has gone back 
for centuries and embedded in the culture, in the law, all of these things which moved now to this point, and now Daniel says, or Daniel's told, it's only going to be another 10 Sabbath jubilees. It's a wonderful picture of the glory of our God, the lengths he goes to to provide salvation. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah reflects on the sin that took Israel into exile. And it says this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that have no water. You want to know what evil is? Evil is knowing that there is a living God. Evil is knowing that there is a relationship with the living God, especially us through Jesus Christ, and rejecting that and deciding that we're going to dig in the earth, we're going to try to get the living water from the place it is not there. Daniel shows for us the glory of our Savior, who for centuries has put in place a plan to bring salvation, a plan that we are now the beneficiaries of. But we should be able to look at that glory and say, oh, what a wonderful Savior. I need to live for Him because I do not want to be like Israel. I am not going to dig a cistern. I am going to desire after the living water. So is that you this morning? In the, in the look of everything, it's not simply that this covenant has come, that the blood and the Messiah has come. How are you going to live? How are you going to react to it? That is you this morning. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks again 